This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's edition of the Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, the draft is now just two weeks away. Pro days seem to be on everyone's mind, but do they really matter? And with me this week, it's actually a special guest, Dan Hatman, the director of the Scouting Academy, who worked in the front office of three NFL franchises, the Eagles, the Jets, and the Giants, joins me to discuss all of the things that you could learn from a pro day and really whether or not they matter. Now, there's a lot of questions that people have had about the draft process, how teams compile boards. We got a lot of questions from the Patreon, so thank you to everyone who submitted a question. I got to several of those in the interview with Dan. But you know, I had a question that I, that I had about really whether or not pro days really mattered, what teams are looking for, what things may help them decide on one player over another. And so I thought, who better than to talk about that than Dan Hatman? His specialty is general managers. If you've ever read his report on general managers and stuff like that, I think he is a really, really great resource for the the goings-on in the front office for an NFL franchise. So I thought, you know what? Why not bring him on and have a chat about this? We have a great conversation about the milestones and the timeline really for setting a draft board, what teams can really glean from a pro day, what draft day trading looks like, uh, and some really interesting information in in quick hits as well. And we also get to his favorite cheeseburger, uh, which is a, a bit of a twist. But it's a great conversation with Dan, and it also allows David and I to get back into the film room and actually break down some more prospects. We're going to have a defensive backs episode next week. All of our quarterback previews are now up on the Patreon, or will be, I think. The Mac Jones one goes up tomorrow. I know that's one everyone's been waiting for. So thanks to everyone who tuned in, and now... My conversation with Dan Hatman. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Good. And you? Things are going well. Let's talk a little ball. Let's do it. Let's jump right in. Uh, I think the the big question that a lot of 49ers fans really have is about the, the pre-draft process. Some of it is a mystery. Some of it is media hype. It's hard to disaggregate the two. So I, I'd love to start with just hearing what some of the key milestones are in the timeline for setting that draft board. Is it set really early in the process? Is it is it you know kind of scratched up all the way until the very end? What what's the what are the big milestones? We start all the way back with summer work, so go to the end of the 2020 draft, and while the people who are working in the pro side and the, obviously the coaching staff are worried about getting that roster, those undrafted free agents through OTAs into training camp. The people in the college department are resetting. They, they unplug for a little period of time and uh, try to recharge the batteries. But then they pick up and they're going to get a list. So like the Niners, for example, they subscribe to National Football Scouting. It's actually the entity that puts on the combine. There are 
Oh, goodness. There's nine blessed, though. There's still like three independents. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 19 or 20 teams subscribe to NFS. And that is actually called a combine. And, and not in the event style, but in the we're combining information. So NFS is going to present initial player uh, tiers. Really, it's just kind of an A, B, C, D type scenario. It's not detailed grades. Uh, they're going to tier players. They're going to present measurables that they've verified during the springtime. Uh, they're going to present character background information that they can collect, what have you. And then now a team scout. So in this case, the Niners scouts are going to be spending the summer researching those players, you know, making sure they've got uh, looks at all of the tier A's and tier B's, potentially into the tier C's, uh, depending on how many are in their region. You know, because the scouts are located all over the country and they're starting to get a profile of what that player looked like the year before, um, you know, the, the last fall they're going to play. So obviously we have so many players now that may only play three years and you may be watching a sophomore, you may be watching a junior, what have you. But you're going to start getting some tape work done over the summer in preparation to go out in a typical year, start going to campuses and. We didn't have that this year, so we, we've got some some ground to make up from, from that standpoint. But through the fall, you're spending time going from campus to campus again in a normal year, trying to patch holes in what you have learned to that point. You're trying to source information from people on that campus on the things you can't acquire from film. Uh, the beautiful thing about film being digital now, we get it quickly. It's high quality. It's immediate in many cases. And so we don't have to go to the campus to watch film like we used to. There was a time when you would actually carry your own 35 millimeter projector onto the college campus because you were borrowing a reel of film from them. And they didn't have extra projectors in many schools. And so you'd bring your own setup and they'd put let you have a room at least. And then you're going reel to reel putting on film. You mean you had to go there to get the film. And we just don't, that's not the, the life we live anymore. Now so anyway, it seems like if, the fall if I look at film from 2011, now it feels like I'm looking into the past because even that, there's it, no doubt. it's there's like, no it looks doubt. like it's in standard definition and you're like, wait, what's that number? Who, what's going on here? It's like the only thing worse at this point is like the bears all 22 and no, like Boise state's college, uh, college tape at this point. It's like, those no are the only doubt. things worse. There's no doubt. So, so now again, when you're going on campus, it's, it's so much for the sourcing. It's so much for the. Again, the information you can't acquire from film. And then the whole time the scouts are out in the fall, they're filing reports and grades. So your decision-making tier, so in this case, it have been John Lynch, <clears throat> Martin Mayhew, Adam Peters, Ethan Waugh, what have you. They will be seeing reports getting filed every week from scouts all over the country, putting Niners grades on them in the fall. And those scouts don't have to lock in those grades for pretty much every team until after Thanksgiving. But you file what you know at that point, because what you're doing is you're allowing the people that are not out on the road in your that area. So, again, the national cross checkers, the directors, assistant directors, player personnel, uh, executives, what have you. You're letting them start to see what the landscape looks like. And now the people over the top are picking and choosing who they want to spend time on and when and what games they might want to go to and what have you. And so 
you know, you learn about players, you know, and it's always funny when people are like, oh, this guy just got on the radar. Chances are no. Um, chances are incredibly, incredibly slim that a player just got on the radar unless it's a small school who had a fantastic pro day. But if they have good tape, we knew in the fall. Um, and then that was being worked through. Now, whether or not you let that name out to people, because when you think about it from a media perspective, the the national people that really carry that message, a lot of what they're doing is trying to show you what might happen on draft weekend. And so they're, they're sourcing heavy from teams as best they can. Well, if you're in an area and you've got a player that you're not quite sure if everybody's on them yet, because again, actually, not again, I didn't say this in an area. So let's say we're talking about the West coast, the West coast scouts, you got one from 32 teams out there. You know what you don't have in the West Coast? Any other people from your own team. You're the only person from your team out there. So people in the area scouting business, most of the time, their best friends are not on their own team. They're on other teams. When they go to a school call, they're not going to a school call with their coworkers. They're going with one of the 31 other representatives from some other team. So you start to hear scuttlebutt on whether or not players are known. And man, you would like to hold on to a sleeper, right? The term sleeper is almost useless anymore because it's so hard to hold on to them, but you try. So I think a lot of what we perceive is like, oh, someone got in the radar late. Oh, someone's climbing boards is really just, it finally become known nationally that this player's out there because a few area scouts had him in October and really tried to hold on to their sleeper. And eventually it just gets out because the player was too good to hold on to. And now all of a sudden they're known nationally. And it's like, oh, hey, no one knew about this guy until just it's, no, it's not, we knew we, we knew back in May when the NFS grades come out that he was probably a, a tier B player. And then he was playing really well in September. And I filed a good grade in October saying, yeah, there's something here. We got to stay on top of this. And internally, we knew that we were all kind of interested. But then again, now it's known nationally um, and it, it takes off from there. So really, with the board question you asked about. December is really big, and then February is really big. So December, most teams are going to go through, and they are going to have a meeting with their whole staff looking at the medical and the character that they've collected from the fall. The fall film grade should be locked in many places by December. And you're diving into what things are scary, background or medical, that we really have to figure out this spring. And that's changing you know, different research categories. And then by the time you've gone through the all-star game circuit, got some verified measurables at those places, um, your February meetings where the board really comes together. And then this March, April window we're in now is learning kind of market value and filling in gaps and saying, okay, well, we had six players in this tier. Now, how do we stack those six players? And so it's less about a player rising the board and more about polishing. Okay, we've we have this literally the same grades on these six guys. Could be across different positions. Now, how do we stack them one through six? We know what we want to do on draft weekend. Now you mentioned a bit about the pro day, and, and you talked about how you know really you don't see a lot of players really kind of catapulting themselves up later in the draft process. You kind of know about them a little bit. But from the fans' perspective, you hear about these players oftentimes in the pro day, and you think, okay, maybe it's the pro day that, that made them rise up a draft board or that got them on the map somewhere. Maybe it's because of a measurable, a really fast 40, some explosion metrics, or something else. 
what are what are teams really looking to glean in that pro day? That this really is the question I asked you a couple of days ago, right? Because part of the reason I reached out was because you're hearing about the Niners go to Justin Fields pro day. They went to Mac Jones or going to Trey Lance. And and I think the the perception is sometimes that these pro days are like, well, if they take all the boxes in these pro days, well, then, yes, we're going to move, you know, Mac Jones ahead of Fields or if Fields has a really great pass in, in shorts and a T-shirt. Maybe I'll move him up against, you know, maybe I'll move him up. But is that really the case? Do teams really do that? And if not, what are they really trying to get from these pro days? So this year, the pro days are unique because it replaced in the combine too, right? So you're getting verified in terms of movement skills. And so the best way I can explain it, and then we have to understand that it's human beings making these decisions and, and human beings are biased. I believe that you should be using these events to patch holes in your eval. So if you're watching a player, so take a Trey Lance, and the offense that they ran at North Dakota State. And there's a lot of pro elements in terms of play action and things of that nature. But there are some things with drops and set up and throws to different parts of the field that they just didn't have as much exposure to. You can watch all the Trey Lance film you want. There's actually really only one season plus one game. Um, but, you know, not every throw is there in, in multitudes. And so going to a Trey Lance pro day, is an opportunity for you to see more of those throws, right? So you're adding to a small sample size from the film and saying, okay, what did those things look like? How did he set up? Has he shown any development? Has anything gotten tighter in terms of that? Does he, can you take and apply coaching? Then you're also just talking to the person, who they are and, and how they act and how they carry themselves and what they believe in. You're trying to glean some of that information. So the quarterback position that's a, a lot of what, about what you're trying to read in those situations. You know, uh, you're going to look at things like who showed up for their pro day to run routes for them. Um, you know, what what people were there to cheer them on. You know, did they do people rally around this player? Um, it's not going to be the, the number one thing, but you're you're not ignoring anything because I don't know why you would ignore what could be useful information now, where you weigh it and how much you weigh it is a, is a hard variable, but you're trying to get yourself exposed to all those things at other positions. A lot of it has to do again with the verifieds this year, short shuttles and three cones and um, my, my nemesis, the 40 time. Um, Seems you know, like it's everyone's nemesis. That, that, that and, one's it's so, it's so elusive. That one. Do, do you think uh, that, that one's uh, going the way of the Dodo with, uh, with GPS timing or do you think that the 40 times uh, is here to stay? It should, it, it should already be gone. The technology exists to map how fast they are in pads right now. Uh, it won't be, I know GPS gets thrown around. Um, not every college is putting a GPS on their players pads. So we can't rely on GPS. So it'd be computer vision at this point. Um, but the computer vision software that exists is good enough to determine how fast a player gets from point A to point B in pads. So we are, we can know right now how fast they are on the field in the film that we're watching. Um, so to then strip, go away from the film, go to shorts in a straight line and a track where they're comfortable with no pads and no mental stimuli. Yeah. I, I don't understand why we do that, but um, can't wave my magic wand and, and change that one overnight. So <laughs> hopefully we'll see that uh, continue to pivot in the years to come. I think the hard thing again is that we're, we're all human going into this and the, the players are and the scouts are and the coaches are. And so what are you looking for in a pro day? I, I think unfortunately you have, 
you have confirmation bias, you have anchoring. Um, if you go into these pre-draft events and you didn't like the player's film and then they go and they run well, chances are you're going to hear someone say, well, yeah, but go back and watch the film. And if you didn't like the player's film and they test poorly, you're probably going to say something like, see, they weren't that good anyway. And then vice versa. If you did like the player's film and they go out and they run well, you're going, hey, look it, we got something, I'm telling you. And if you like the player's film and they go out and they run poorly, you're going to go, well, see, don't worry about that. Just watch how fast they play in pads. And so I don't, I don't know how to put much stock in pro days personally. And I, and I know I'm in the minority and there's a lot of people in the community that um, believe in them. I don't know how to follow that line of logic and get excited about it the same way, unless we're filling in something that we didn't know, you know, they're, their team, their offense, their system did not show us something or show us enough snaps of something to really get a handle on it. Well, then, yeah, absolutely. Why wouldn't I fill that in with the first or second pro day in this kind of cycle and, and try to bridge that gap? Um, but if I've already got enough evidence as to what that looks like, I don't know why I'm going to throw away what I've already collected about them playing the game for what they did in shorts and a T-shirt. Yeah, and, and it seems like this year, the, the because there are no private workouts, it seems like these second pro days are a bit of a loophole where you can get some of those private workout details that you wouldn't be able to get normally. You mentioned in, in our discussion a couple days ago that really it, it is those private workouts where you can say, okay, we want you to do these things, incorporate this into the script of, of the thing you're going to run through. And it seems like the players are kind of doing that now for the 49ers. I mean, we know that Fields is putting in some of the the things that Shanahan wants to see, the things that maybe he would do in a private workout, but because there are no private workouts, then you, you do that in this kind of quasi-public-private pro day because of, of the rules that are around here. So it sounds like, at the very least, the Niners are are taking it as an opportunity to see perhaps some things that they didn't get to see often on tape or to confirm a couple of things. Because I, I tend to agree with you. I don't know that pro days really should change your evaluation too much. If anything, they're, they're going to confirm some things that you're seeing or some explosion numbers or some, you know, some timings. But I think you, you bring up a really, really good point, which is it's confirming what? It's confirming what you already think. And, and you better hope that what you think is right. It, it is indeed confirmation bias. Yeah, th and this is... <clears throat> The most difficult thing with it is that we're not – the goal is actually not to determine what they've done. The goal is to predict what they're going to do. Right? I mean we're looking at this quarterback pool and for purpose of the conversations, we're literally limiting it to, to three of the five most talked about names because the likelihood of them being there at pick three. And so of those three players, we are watching what they've done in the past, but – I no one cares about what they did in the past. Really, what we care about is what they're going to do in the future. You're trying to see what evidence from past performance will predict future performance. And you're going to take them out of the environment that they're in, away from those coaches, away from that city, away from those teammates, bring them to a new place with a new value set and a new philosophy and a new head coach and a new play caller and a new position coach and new teammates and new skilled players and new people protecting for them and put them into the pressure situation of being an NFL performer who's a third overall pick. So no matter who it is, there's unbelievable expectations about being the savior, the person that's going to get the Niners to the promised land. Um, with the roster that's built there, everyone's going to be expecting 
performance sooner rather than later. And then we're all kind of riding with Shanahan knows what he's doing. Why second guess him? Which I would be doing the same thing if I'm in that building. And so, you know, everyone's going to be in this huge pressure situation. Well, that's what we're trying to figure out is when we, when we shift everything about this person's life, will they still perform as well as they did? In fact, no one wants them to perform as well as they did because all of the guys available have some areas of concern in their game that you would hope that would get better. And so really you're trying to predict, will they play better than they played in college? When we do all these things and we change everything about their lives and we put them into a higher pressure situation, will they play better? Which means we have to ask ourselves, will they develop? So then it's not just about what did they do? It's about how did they arrive at what they did? I, I love this line. How did the plant grow before the flower bloomed? Their college performance is that flower blooming. It's the outcome. It's what everybody can see. But how did they arrive at that? What kind of coaching have they really received going back to their youth days? Because there is so much of it, you know, for a Justin Fields, he got to participate in the elite 11s. He got to be a part of the QB collective thing that the Shanahan's are a part of, um, went to some major programs, you know, for, for Mac Jones, it's, you know, he had to wait his turn, but then he's put into a situation that Alabama has been very good at development, even at quarterback development over the past few years. And so, those are the kind of things that I would be interested in if this decision was mine is not how did they do it. I'm trying to go past what they did. I'm trying to predict the future. What can I learn about how they achieved that level of performance so that I can determine is the scenario I'm going to bring them into actually going to be able to elicit better performance when they get here. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff and it affects everything which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. There are two more things I want to get to before we get to... Well, really, one more thing I want to get to before we get to some quick hits, and I'll get your thoughts on, on actually ranking the three quarterbacks since I, I can glean a bit of insight into whom I think you might put in, you know, in the 49ers position if you were to make the decision based on on that quote, which is a, a really a really great one, I think. How did, how did the flower grow or how did the plant grow before it bloomed? I'm curious what stories you've got or anything that you've heard about the most odd thing that a team has done in a private workout. Because the Niners are no strangers to oddities in private workouts. Aaron Rodgers, as he tells it, you know, was not the quarterback for the 49ers because Alex Smith opened the door for his mom. So, and of course, that meant that Alex Smith was, you know, just a nicer guy, more stand-up guy, and Aaron Rodgers maybe was too cocky. And now, you know, one's in the Hall of Fame uh, and the other became a good quarterback, but, but he's no Aaron Rodgers. So what's the, the weirdest or oddest story you've heard of of a pro day or a private workout where a team made a decision and you're like, oh, that's interesting? You know, I don't think it's the things that you set up ahead of time um, as a test per se, because, you know, we've seen teams do things like, um, you know, give playbooks and material and what have you. Um, there was a time when you do it physically and you stash money 
in the back, like, in the last couple pages of it. Oh, really? And see, did they, you know, did they get there? And then um, did that come up in conversation? <laughs> did they reach the end of the book? And did they actually find the money? That means they got to the end of the book. Um, so <laughs> that is wild. How much those things with it being digital now, you know, I, I don't know how much those are still, uh, can still you, going can on. Can you stash a Bitcoin? You're trying to get creative on that. I think it's the things like you're mentioning. I think it's when you you have a certain uh, archetype of what you believe a person that position should look like, typically based on the teams you've been with and the successful quarterbacks at that, or again, for this purpose, it's conversation quarterback, successful quarterbacks you've been around. What do they look like? What did they do? And then when you see something from a prospect that reminds you of that, however strange, it, you know, again, opening a door. Um, Cause I imagine that that might've gotten one person excited. And then another person might've said, no, I want the hunter killer out there. You know, I want him slamming the door in mom's face. Like I want the ultra competitor. You know, it just, it's such a beauty in the eye of the beholder situation. Um, that when you start getting into like, what's weird, it's what things broke ties, what things cleared up a stack, what things did someone use the last minute to prioritize? Cause it's usually not, it's not taking the entire market of players and saying, Oh, well, Alex opened the door. So now he's better than everybody, no matter what it was. We have these two guys in the same tier. We're trying to split hairs. We're trying to rank them. We're trying to stack them, choose between them. What are we going to use to do that? Because nothing in our standard process gave us that answer. We have them in the same tier. Okay, well, now that we're in the same tier, none of our earlier stuff differentiated them. Now what can we dive in and select? And so, yeah, holding a door might trip somebody to, yeah, that's what I remember of this other player I was with. That's the kind of guy I want to be around. Let's go get them. It's like when you listen to Dave Gettleman talk about why I picked Daniel Jones, he, which reminded me of Eli Manning. And that was a successful archetype that he'd been around and has two rings because of it. And so when Daniel Jones did Eli Manning type things, uh, not surprising, they were both coached by David Cutcliffe, then that, that swayed the decision. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, if we if we zoom to draft day, I've got a couple of questions for you before we get to some quick hits uh, and some some fun questions. Where we'll round out the 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 interview here, since I know you've got to run in a few. But it's draft day. The phones are ringing, and you're thinking about trading a pick. At what point in that timeline do you need to really shut things down and say, "I need to make a decision here," and and I need or I need to make a pick, and and I've got to get that card in. What does that timing look like? And, and do teams really still use the Jimmy Johnson trade chart when they're putting this stuff together? Or are there other wider considerations or other custom charts they may rely on? All right. So the timing of it, you're trying to frame deals earlier. You don't want to do it when you're on the, the clock. Um, so all this month, decision makers are talking to each other about, well, if I wanted to, what would it look like to come up? Right. Or, you know. Uh, vice versa. And so you're framing those out. So when you get to being on the clock, you've already had a lot of the negotiation prior to being there. And you're just nailing down those pieces. What happens is if you get surprised by a team that you hadn't necessarily had a conversation with, and now all of a sudden they want to move to a situation, um, it, it does that. As we look at trades that happen later on where they are more spontaneous, because you're not prepping your fourth round trade two weeks before, so as we look at those, we do see a lot of trades that follow more of the Jimmy Johnson value 
when coming up. And it's not because teams haven't endeavored to find better charts. It's that if 32 teams go out to find a better chart and they all find 32 better charts, but they can't agree to which of the 32 is the better chart, they end up coming back to the thing that kind of started it all. And certainly for the teams that are trading back, I want that Jimmy Johnson value. Right? I want the inflated premium pick value. Right? When the Niners came up to three, leaving three wasn't going to be, oh, well, my chart says it's actually not worth as much as I want. No, it's I want the Jimmy Johnson value. I got leverage right now. You want my pick. Um, so a lot of that in a past trade behavior sets that future market. So a lot of teams, when they're looking at what it might cost, they're going to look at, okay, what trades have happened in the past to move from this type of position to this type of position? And what did that cost? And even though, again, we've learned so much about how the whole market of the draft has moved and changed and the value that's really in it, it is hard to move the trade stuff away from what anchored all those previous behaviors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it makes sense. I know the Niners have their own chart. That was one of the reasons Prague Marate was brought on. That was like his first job with the Niners. And they probably use that to, for their own internal decision making. But then when it comes to trying to exert some kind of pressure or leverage on the team they're talking to, they're going to use the the currency that's been set between the teams and that Jimmy Johnson trade chart. That that makes a ton of sense. Uh, well, well, Dan, we're going to get to some quick hits here. Five questions for you real quick that hopefully will round out the interview uh, and, and get your thoughts on some of these on some of these quarterbacks as well, because that's where we're going to start. If you're the GM at three and you've got personnel control and Shanahan is your coach, but in this world, you've got personnel control. So you get to make the decision. Who do you pick at three? I, I will be very much on record that I would not be dictatorial with my coach at three. I just I I can't do it because they coach that position. That's their baby. Um, if Kyle worked for me. I would be I would put them in the tier and then say, let's go pick out of that. But he's going to drive that ship. Um, I would I can't imagine telling my head coach who they have to play with um, at that premium of a position. So I know it's a cop out, but it, it, totally truthful for me. I would I would ride with Kyle's decision. We're, we're in a hypothetical world, though. And in this hypothetical world, you get to rank those quarterbacks in that tier. Uh, and let's say you're ranking Lance Jones and Fields. How do you rank them? Uh, Lance and Fields above Jones. Um, I like the, you know, I like the tools. I like the developmental upside, uh, piece of it. And then if I'm really banking on development, if I'm really thinking we can bring it along, I'll probably have Lance just a notch above because he hasn't had as much of that high tier, uh, as the other guys. And, you know, you're banking that that he can go further. And this is all when you're going off of film. And I've never met any of these young men. All right. Your specialty is general managers. Give John Lynch a grade based on the first four years of his tenure in San Francisco. It's going to be a big one. And it's because he learned from past mistakes and continue to adapt and evolve. Um, you know, the first draft, the Solomon Thomas stuff was not. You know, that draft did not work out, um, but he's continued to evolve and continue to build a good roster. Uh, and so I think you're talking about, you know, without having done this scientifically beforehand, you know, in that B plus A minus type range, he's done a really good job. 
This is all gut feel, Dan. You, you won't be held to these later. There will be no uh, coming back for the, with pitchforks. This is all gut feel. You can change your gut feel uh, in the next question or so. If you feel like this is the way the quick hits work, this is wonderful. Um, in, in your time in NFL front offices, front offices, Dan, you helped track the performance of kickers and punters. And so Niners fans would love to know, was Mitch Wisnowski worth it in your expert estimation? Uh, no, I can't get into punters and kickers um, with draft capital. Um, it's just such a mental performance piece. And guys that you invest in may do it for a little while, but it's so hard to do it over the long term um, that you're going to be able to do them undrafted. And so, I, I no. How about Robbie Gold? You got it as good as gold. I mean, his name says it all. What Was he worth that franchise tag? Yes. Yeah, the, the money's not that extravagant at that position. Do you have any draft crushes this draft season? Yes. Yes, but uh, um, <laughs> I've been starting with the premium guys, and so none of the names are going to be uh, like under the radar or whatever. Uh, That's the, fine. The we've, pit, we've established the pit, earlier the that there is, no, there is no sleeper. There is no such thing. So just give, the, give us your, your draft crush. The, pit, the Kyle Pitts is just... Uh, amazing um he moves better than some of the big receivers uh doing the league that are big names so he's just unbelievable uh to watch and so that that's like the one where positional value be damned everything else be damned like if i other than atlanta because the quarterback premium still there you're probably trading out of that's probably the smart decision pretty soon after that i want to get my hands on, on kyle pitts yeah, he's a he's a really really interesting prospect, and and this year more than any, it's interesting how if you don't need a quarterback, with so many quarterbacks potentially going in the top eight, you know whomever picks six seven, uh, they're they have their hands at maybe like the best non quarterback player in the draft, uh, and that's a really really interesting spot to be if you're in that top ten area or within striking distance of that top. Absolutely. 10. Um, all right, last question. I am a burger aficionado. I love cheeseburgers. Uh, Andy Reid and I uh, are simpatico in that regard. But I would like to know the best burger that you've ever had uh, and where potentially I could get it if it is from a restaurant establishment. Man, I, I don't know if I've ever had a, a mind-blowing burger. I've had some good ones. I don't know if I've ever had like the killer end-all, be-all. Uh, I'll pivot on you a little bit and said, there's a sandwich I haven't stopped thinking about in gears. It was a Cuban at a place in Seattle called Paseo that I had when going out to scout a game, um, out there. And, oh my God, it's been like over a decade and I've tried a bunch of Cuban scents and nothing's been able to measure up in my mind to that bad boy. You know, as someone with a Cuban grandmother and someone who loves a Cuban sandwich, I feel like if you're going to pivot anywhere, that's the place to go. <laughs> Cuban sandwiches are delicious. They're amazing. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I'm going to put that on my list of things to try. That's great. And, and I take it now as a personal challenge that I, uh, if we are in the same location, need to take you to a burger joint uh, and, and see if I can get you that mind-blowing burger. Because once you get one, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I'm in. Dan... Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it on this bright and early Thursday morning. It's 8 a.m. Uh, so, or at least we started at 8 a.m. So I appreciate the, the schedule flexibility to make this happen. Oh, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. 
That does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Next week, we will have an episode devoted to the defensive backfield. We have got our actual visual scouting profiles for Fields and Lance and Mac Jones will be up tomorrow. So you'll get to see visual examples of all the things we've been discussing thus far. Thanks again to Dan Hatman, the director of the Scouting Academy, for coming on and giving us insight into the inner workings of an NFL front office. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, go Niners. Go Niners.